Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Obeska, and I am happy to announce that we have just been named to the top 40 social justice podcasts by Feedspot. So, hey, but in other news, I'm here to talk today with Alexandra Patchman about her new short film, Thumb, currently on the festival circuit. So I have to ask, given your connection to the art world and to performance art in general, where do you come down on the side of is pain art? There is an opening poster that says is pain art. And I don't mean to give this as a spoiler, but I am just curious how you feel about performance artists who specifically incorporate pain into their work. Yeah, I mean, this was super inspired by people like, you know, Marina Abramovic and Chris Burden, who um, like famously did this performance shoot in the 70s where he had someone shoot him in the arm. And I mean, I'm just super fascinated with people who are willing to go to such an extreme for their art, right? I mean, I feel like when you are a writer or an artist, you know, any kind, you are really pushing yourself to some kind of emotional or sometimes physical extreme to to get the work out there and to express what you're trying to say. And then I think there's something really compelling about people who go there in a really purely physical way and really put their body on the line to say something. And that is just really compelling. Yeah, really compelling to me as an artist and then also having you know, worked in and around the art world and seeing these really visceral examples of that. Um, but also as someone who loves horror. And of course, you know, I hear that, you know, working in and around um, performance art, that there's this, uh, you know, person who shot himself in the arm, or there's Boziana Otter, who used to like throw himself off of uh, not very high, but, but, you know, considerably high buildings and houses. And that was his art. Like, that obviously screams horror movie to me. Yeah, definitely. And I also wondered if you could explain what your relationship to the art world has been for my listeners. Oh, yeah. Uh, I used to be uh, an art writer. So I my first job uh, out of college was I was a fact checker at an art magazine at Art News. And then from there, I pretty much spent the next six years um, working for and at art magazines like um, Aperture and um, uh, Art News again uh, in a different capacity and W Magazine. And so uh, that was, you know, interviewing artists and reviewing shows was what I was living and breathing. And so uh, I started working uh, in the entertainment industry about four years ago. So when I was starting to think about directing my own work, I was working as a screenwriter. I felt like naturally this was a world that I knew a lot of interesting stories and details about. And I felt was like a really rich territory for a horror film. I mean, I'm not the first person to make a horror movie about the art world, but um, I felt like I had something uh, new to say. And something very unique to contribute, because I will say I've seen a lot of films specifically on the topic of performance art more recently in the last couple of years in a way that I haven't in a very long time. And it's interesting to watch this piece in its commentary because it's very different from all the other things like Velvet Buzzsaw that's out there. 
do you feel like in terms of the things that influenced you the most in your horror journey, do you feel like they come through at all in this film? I hope so. I mean, um, I feel like there is, a, you know, this is, I wouldn't say that this is a Jallo, but it's like Jallo tinged. And there's obviously like a great tradition of those kinds of films dealing with art world spaces, like, you know, Bird with the Crystal Plumage or Quiet Place mm-hmm. in the Country, or, you know, even to a certain extent, like Eyes of Laura Mars, I guess you could say is a mm-hmm. Jallo film um, yeah. in a way. Uh, and so I think there's some, kind of connection there. I mean, I I uh, got the idea for the movie from a conversation with a curator who um, I was interviewing about something else. And then she told me uh, this story that she was trying to include this work in a recent show and all the work belonged to a sister who of the artist who was dead and wouldn't let them Uh, use it in the show even though it was like a pretty obscure artist not from America Um, I think she was from Montenegro like to be in this it was at MoMA big Mm -hmm. American show international museum would have been a huge deal sort of like why would this woman not want her and you know and there would be money involved and stuff like why would she not want her sister's work and so um, I just became like really fascinated with that idea uh, like of what could have happened there. And then my mind sort of went to, well, what if it was haunted and what would that look like? And then uh, Kate and I uh, were talking about uh, whether it could be a mother and a daughter. So I guess it's a long way of saying like, you know, there are certain films that inspired um, a little bit, but then also, uh, you know, my own experiences played a big part. That's incredible. And also the idea of legacy, the way that you explore that within the film is fascinating. And I have to also admit, I was very much thrown for a loop, given that the first email I received was from Lee Enders. And then (laughs) I watched the film and it's like, wait, wait, what? What? That was a little Easter egg. We, we, you know, a bunch of us who made the film are are running that account and we were like, uh, we should we should have it come from <laughs> Lee Enders. Um, so yeah, you're actually the first person to to mention that. So are you serious? Because yeah. that was like, wait, what? What? Because at first I was like, oh, is this a real person? This is whoa, whoa. Well, you have to pick a name. It, you know, yeah. rather than it just be thumb the film is emailing you. We were like, oh. <laughs> No, I love that. I love that you did that. And I find that so creative. Oh, cool. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, for people who don't know, Lee Enders is the name of our fictional performance artist at the center of this story. (laughs) And to do that, I think also creates a different kind of relationship to her as well. So that's quite fascinating. Yeah, we want her to feel real. (laughs) Yeah. And in building up the backstory of that character, What was that like for you and Kate? It was really fun. I mean, that's probably the part we spent the longest on, to be totally honest. I mean, not um, consecutively, but I mean, we talked about, so, you know, that story I told you about the sort of initial inspiration, we probably talked about it off and on for like about a year. We're sort of like, well, what would, you know, we'd meet every so often, every few months to kind of talk about it because I feel like it's, I think it's important you're talking about different art world 
films to like really take the art in the fake art in movies seriously and to really put as much effort into it as a real artist would. And I think that like, it makes the, the drama or the horror that much stronger. Like if the conceit behind it or the, you know, that it, it feels real and visceral. And so, so yeah, we talked about it for a while and, you know, researched um, different, you know, art of the, 70s or like you know another reference point would be um Anna Mendieta um and like yeah Boz John Otter and different people like that who I hadn't even heard of Boz John Otter before before I started like researching this um he actually really did die um doing one of his pieces uh actually very sadly and so uh we a different piece than I described he um was sailing for a piece and and disappeared. So there were all these kind of like ghost stories in a way swirling around. And, um, and then we, uh, you know, finally put pedal to the metal sometime, (laughs) sometime later. Well, it's just such a fascinating concept to take, especially being a writer. And obviously everyone who writes for a living also knows very much the concept of suffering for their art. So I also wonder how the resonance worked for you on that level too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's just, I mean, it's obviously a metaphor in in a certain way. And then it's this kind of release and getting to portray that kind of artistic expression that can be really harrowing and like, and painful in an emotional or psychological way in this very visceral way. I mean, it's called thumb and we're talking about performance arts artists who hurt themselves. So I think people can kind of put together what, what happens um, or if you see the poster Uh, and yeah, it just felt like this really clean, simple metaphor for, you know, for something that I think we all, uh, experience when you try to make things but I think also uh even more than that like there's a certain thing I was interested in and like what it's like to be related to an artist and the pain that that can cause and how Mm -hmm. being around that kind of person can kind of suck all the life out of everything you know because you are almost kind of haunted by their work and it's always present and it's always there like a ghost, you know, both uh, me experiencing that with other people and also imagining maybe what, maybe I'm Leanders. I don't know. Um, Imagining what other people like, you know, in your family or your relationships, like what you bring to those relationships by being an artist. So I felt like that'd be really rich material to explore with a mother and a, and a daughter. And also this idea of legacy and then a daughter is kind of your legacy and also what it means to be a female artist or female yes. creator, um, which is a little part of that as well. Very much so. And it's interesting because I don't know if you're familiar with the Dali sculptures of thumbs that kept coming to my mind anyway, while I was watching cool. it. But he used to have a lot of sculptures where you would have like a thumb and then branches like a tree coming off of it. That's it. He's an interesting artist to bring up because, you know, Dali was kind of like hard strapped for cash like later in his life. And he like sold his cop. I, I don't I'm not saying this exactly correct, but the, the gist is the same. So if I'm using the wrong language, like, please fact check me or anyone listening, don't holding you to the, these words but it's like he sold his copyright to people or something so there's all these 
fake dollies where it's like, they're so ubiquitous that actually the work doesn't have as much value. And it's really hard to tell what's a real dolly or not. And like a lot of things have been discovered to be fake, even though it's like, well, are they fake? Cause they're like fabrications that he allowed. So it's like, I don't know that. I mean, that's a super interesting piece of this whole artist to say artist legacy question where like what happens after artists die often really shapes beyond their control, like who we study and who we see in museums and who's part of the canon. And um, I feel like it's a kind of underappreciated or overlooked aspect of that world that there are a lot of stories like, like Baragon is another artist who or architect whose work is like kind of underground and like really hard to get access to because the people who own it are not inclined to let it out. Yeah. When you think about all of the different artworks that we have through the ages and what's apocrypha and what's not, all of those elements make it very complicated and difficult. Yeah. But, but great stories. There's a really great film about the Baragan thing um, by the artist, uh, Jill Maggid. Um, I forget the name of, I think it's called The Proposal or something mm. like that. Um, it's really interesting documentary. Excellent. I will have to look that up because I'm very curious about that. She did a, perf- a, a conceptual art piece about trying to get the archive out, which is probably a slight inspiration of this, but very, very different format. Um, <laughs> uh, that is not a horror movie. Yeah, that sounds fascinating to me. The cinematography of this is so strong. I was just absolutely blown away by the way that you use the lighting within the location. I just really was very, very impressed by your use of color and light and wondered if you could kind of comment on how you came up with a lot of the storyboarding ideas and the way that that came to be used with your DP. Yeah, um, well, I shout out to Julia Swain, our DP, who uh, is just so incredible as well as our steady cam operator, James Marin, who uh, walked down those stairs many times. So thank you, James. <laughs> um, I mean, I wanted it to, We that was a big discussion because um, I'm really fascinated by this idea of horror in the daylight. So, you know, movies like um, Funny Games uh, <laughs> or Midsommar, uh, have really struck me over the years um, and how, uh, yeah, just that, that irony of the, you know, bright uh, golden sunshine and unspeakable horror happening. And so I felt like that kind of golden California Topanga Canyon 70s artist aesthetic would make for a really interesting backdrop for for horror so that was very much the inspiration and you know looking at pictures of places like the Judd Foundation where um Donald Judd's house in New York preserved like just so as he had it before he died and Chris Burden lived in Topanga Canyon and had a kind of like interesting artist estate um or you know home live work home And so, yeah, that was like, and we, you know, used a lot of natural light. We had a really strict palette of these, you know, gold and brown and uh, then just some green. And so our red really 
stands out yeah. uh, on her, um, her main character wearing this red dress that is a bit of a, an allusion to what is going to happen. And yeah. And then just uh, in terms of, we didn't storyboard, but we did like really extensively shot list. And I also made some really beautiful drawings that were sort of like storyboards of like the opening, probably few minutes. Um, they are very bad. Uh, actually, <laughs> they're like little stick figures. Julia would be like, I can't tell which one is in camera. Um, they're, they look like a five-year-old did them. But I mean, but I, I really like doing that for things that are really supposed to be sort of iconic moments of the film, because I feel like that helps me pare it down, especially because I am such a bad storyboard artist. I want to do as few frames as possible um, to, get, to stop doing it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, we, we uh, I'm trying to think of what else I could tell you about that. Um you know, obviously we had to really plan out those steady cam shots. Like we have one that's about three and a half minutes long. Um, and uh, I mean, that's more about the camera movement than the lighting. Um, I mean, and the other thing I guess I would say about the lighting is like, there were a lot of strict rules that we had both about movement and light as it progresses where it starts really golden. And we have like browns and golds and green and then as they they move upstairs to where the secrets are revealed about leander's estate we move into a space that's more akin to like a white cube gallery space with a more bright um white light and the space looking more like a gallery itself which you know having just said that i felt like this world of 70s performance artists lends itself to horror i think like the sterile white um, completely clinical gallery space is also scary in its own way and that yeah. I think serves the the horror that takes place. And that's a very giallo image too, right? Yeah. Dario Argento definitely uses those clinical whites quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, no, I mean, not a total giallo reference. I really love how you incorporated what seems at first like it might be credits into the wall, but then it's actually part of the backstory of your character. Making that decision to have the film literally enter through an entryway point is just such a beautiful decision that you made that I think, however crude your storyboard drawings, that's a very, very strong idea. And thank you. Paid off very well. Yeah, those are actually designed by our production designer, designer Kyle Leeser. And he and I talked a lot about what those ads should, I mean, it's in the script, what they're going to say, and that that's part of the building up of who the people are and setting the tone for the story is the posters of Lee's illustrious career. But Kyle actually comes from a family of artists um, and he really just knew exactly what that world should look like what the you know retrospective poster what the font would be like what the stuff and so he he came up with a lot of really cool ideas even like that first the first um ad that you see uh where you see the um the uh decades old ad for the thumb performance yeah. um at you know box space with young lee enders uh, it was, he was like, there should be a red bloody thumbprint on it. 
like that that would be very uh that would be what they would do back then i'm like all right yeah cool and so he oh that's wonderful really brought that to life so what's next on the horizon for you at this point after you're looking at promoting this film in Sitges and many other festivals. What are you looking forward to now? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited, obviously, about the other festivals, too. It's going to um, Chicago, Indie Memphis, uh, Horror Fest International, uh, which is in Utah, and uh, some other ones as well, Uh uh, nightmares, which is in Ohio, Columbus, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, I I'm looking forward to uh, I'm finishing the feature length version uh, script of Thumb, which I'm excited about, and then I'm writing scripts for some different uh, production companies for other directors. Um, I'm a working screenwriter, and this was my first short because I want to also direct. And I, uh, I directed another short actually very soon after this one uh, with pretty much all the same creative department heads and same actress that uh, once Thumb is done with its festival run, we're going to send that one out too. That's awesome. Congratulations. It sounds like you've got a lot going on. Thank you. I'm, yeah, I'm, I really love what I do. So that's fortunate. <laughs> Um, for being busy. Yeah, it always makes a big difference because in this particular industry, you have to be constantly busy, but also constantly in love with what you're doing in order to stay busy. Yeah, that's that's for sure. I, yes, you have to juggle many things at once. And, uh, but yeah, I'm happy. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and for having this conversation. And I hope that our audience can have a chance to see this wonderful film at any of the many festivals it will be playing at. Thank you so much. This has been a real delight. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for for me as well. Take good care. You too. Bye. Bye. Before you go, did you know that we're presenting at South by Southwest? Rabia and I will be talking about crafting a culture of accessibility in the film and TV industry. Please stay tuned and we will share more about what's going on in Austin. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. 
You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Thank you.